0: Well good morning everyone. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here at Res City. Thankful to have you joining us this Sunday morning in worship. Uh it's always fun to me to find out what people's first job is. It just is it's so interesting. A lot of times I feel like it's a it's a job I like never expected someone to have. Um and I think mine might be like that a little bit. Um Actually, my first job was a paper route. I don't know if any of you had a paper route. I rarely meet people who had a paper route when they were growing up. Um, And in case you didn't know, it's really nothing like um, in the movies where you have a kid riding a bike and they're just kind of tossing a rolled up newspaper in the general direction of someone's front porch or something like that. That's not how it works. I actually, the, the the people that I delivered to, my neighbors, they had very specific places I had to memorize where everyone um, wanted their newspaper put. So I couldn't really get away with that. Um, but I was really excited about the job nonetheless. Uh, I was 12 years old, and um, I was going to get paid like $100 to $120 a month. It was someone there. And all I remember thinking as a 12-year-old was... Think how many Legos I could buy with all this money that I'm making every month. Um, It was a fun job. Um, But it it was a challenge for 12-year-old Joel. Um, As the week went on, the papers got bigger and bigger um, until you got to Sunday, where they were just chock full of ads and cartoons And that's when the big Sunday features get written. So there's more space in the paper that's being devoted to longer stories. In addition to that, more people were getting their papers, uh, were getting papers delivered to them throughout the week. So you could, you know, you could get a paper every day of the week, but some people would just sign up to get papers on Friday through Sunday. And some people only got a Sunday paper. That was it. And so as a 12-year-old, I couldn't fit on Sundays, especially, I couldn't fit all these papers in in my bag. The one that was just kind of at my side as I rode my bike, I, I couldn't fit them all in there. I couldn't carry them, and I had to do multiple trips to hit up the whole neighborhood. And I kind of found out the hard way that this wasn't going to work like any other day of the week. I remember my first Sunday, as I tried to to do this, I would uh, throw all these I threw all these papers in my bag, and um, I I tried to start riding my bike. And I, I couldn't get going and I just, I, I wiped out, I fell over, it kind of toppled over. And uh, yeah, it wasn't fun, <laughs> it wasn't fun. Um, but it wasn't so much the, the lean, of how heavy the papers were that just kind of kept my me from having bounce or anything. And that's why I fell over. Certainly that was, that was definitely part of it. But the real issue was that the bag being so heavy meant that I could not get more, my momentum up. And I assume if you're listening to this, um, you have ridden a bike before and you know if you can't get your momentum up, you're not moving forward, not moving towards your destination, you will fall off the bike. Now I bring this up because I once heard an analogy about reading scripture, about what we could call good hermeneutics, that it's like riding a bike. So you have to keep moving forward toward the destination which we could call the big idea of the passage or of the book maybe itself, right? And you can slow down on certain verses or words, but if you stop going, you will fall off. You will not be able to reach the destination if you don't keep the momentum up, right? So if when we're reading scripture, I think if we stop too long to dwell on one specific little thing, if we want to try to make one little thing the most important part of the passage, um, we're going to fall off the bike and maybe... Uh, even uh, of the bike of the passage or even of the whole book that we're reading. Okay, now this doesn't mean that you can never focus on small little things, but if but if that's all you do, you will get derailed. Now, one of uh today is one of those passages where there are a few spots that we could get hung up on and kind of miss the main point if we don't keep up our momentum of moving towards the big idea. Of the passage and actually we' we'll, we'll miss how the main point I think comes back to fill in and explain some of those things um, we're in this series it's called becoming who we are it's a uh, it's a sermon series through the book of first Corinthians and it's a church uh, from the Apostle Paul written to a church in Corinth that has a lot of issues now every church has issues and every era of the church has different issues and we are no different. Res City has issues, things that we uh, have to deal with if we're going to follow God well. And I think every era of church seems to grapple with specific large things that they have to work through. And um, that I think that's why 1 Corinthians is such a perpetually relevant letter, because it, it deals with all sorts of problems that the church can have. And we can go back to it for wisdom on how to navigate our own challenges in the present, Um, especially because the big theme of the letter is about, really, it's about holiness and about an identity of holiness and what it means to take that identity seriously. And I think if we can do that, if we can come back to that over and over again, we're going to be able to navigate through the challenges that we have in our era of church, of doing ministry, of, of following Jesus in the world that we live in today. So what I want to do is I want to read the passage out loud first. I think it's, it's good to do that, and then we will uh, jump into it, and we'll kind of go through it little by little, but always kind of moving the bike forward, um, heading towards the, uh, the main goal of the passage. So this is 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 to 11. It's the whole chapter of first—sorry, it's, it's, uh, it's not the whole chapter. That's a mistake I have in my notes here. Um, it is just the, uh, the, the first half of it. We'll do the next half next week. First Corinthians 6, 1 to 11. When one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you are going to judge the world, can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these issues? But instead, one believer sues another right in front of other unbelievers. Even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if you remember back to our first sermon in this series, and we've come back to this a couple of different times, the framing verse of the passage, and and really this whole letter is this last verse, verse 11, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is your identity. This is your identity. And so following Jesus from an identity standpoint is really about becoming who we are. That's what the Christian life is about. It's, it's a process of becoming who we already are, of living into what is already true of us. Like a flower that is blooming into uh, exactly what you see on the seed packet when you buy the seeds, And you, before you plant them, the flower turns into what you see in the picture. Okay. That's what this is like. And we've come back to this over and over again in the series because Paul comes back to it over and over again in the letter. Now, specifically this section is about this. Here's the big idea. It's about how holiness guides our day-to-day lives in regards to conflict and rights, especially within the church. All right, this is where the bike is headed. And so today, we're going to really study that in depth. I want to have us move forward, ride the bike through to this big idea in the passage. I want to uh, make sure that we understand that as we walk through it. And we'll slow down to go through some of the different things that are within it that might feel like they could cause us to get uh, knocked over in some way. Okay, so when it comes to conflict, we all experience this right? Whether it's, you know, open conflict or maybe the, the more Minnesota version of it, of being very passive aggressive uh, towards each other. And we all have to figure out how to navigate how our rights are going to translate into some setting uh, when others are allowed to br- brush up against them too, not just us, right? This is a perpetual problem in America where rights are so fundamental and they're always a point of debate and question is what happens when these things bump into each other? And Paul's going to talk about this a little bit in the passage, even though I guess that modern idea of rights is kind of foreign to him living in an ancient world. I think it still speaks to that a little bit for us today. And in particular, in this passage, Paul's going to express his frustration that as he looks at the Corinthians and as he hears about this specific situation he's talking about here today, he is seeing, it's very clear to him, that holiness is not coming out of the Corinthians naturally in regards to a specific conflict in the church. Right? And this, this seems honestly like the most frustrated he seems to be in the whole letter. Okay, and so while he's upset with the, the individuals who are involved in the specific thing, you also get a strong sense that he's upset with the whole church. And and that no one is willing to take ownership and sort of shake the church into embracing even just the bare minimum of holiness. So let's get into it. Now, it's not too hard to figure out, figure this out, to see what's going on here, but let's still kind of un- unpack it in some depth because there is some, I think, background information that is kind of helpful to understand, help, help add some color to the, the, the picture that is being uh, drawn for us here. So let me read this again. 1 Corinthians 6, 1, and then we'll jump uh, to verse 6 because I think that's where it's really clear. So it says, When one of you has has a dispute with one another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers. Verse 6. But instead, one believer sues another, right in front of unbelievers. So here's what you have. You have two people within the church. They have some, we could call this some kind of civil disagreement. Now, who knows what it was? We don't know. We have no clue. Um, All we can really tell from what Paul says is that it's probably petty. At least Paul thinks it is. Um, verse 2, he says little things. He talks about being able to mediate through little things. And maybe based on how Paul narrows in on ideas of being cheated and thieving and greed in a few verses, it could have had something to do with theft from a fellow church member or maybe wronging someone's someone's rights in some way. Okay, Now, either way, these two parties, these two people, okay. Despite having the spirit and the pattern or the example of Jesus, they can't seem to draw on those things to figure out a way to move forward. And Paul, who, who knows this exact situation in a way we don't, he seems to think they should have been able to. He does not seem to think that this is, should have been too difficult for them to do. Now, I think that's clear. That's not too hard to discern from reading the passage, but maybe what's not as clear for us, especially living in a different time and place uh, and and culture than they did, is is how this would have been seen by the community around the Corinthian church, okay? And this is really important. So if you had a lawsuit in the ancient Greco-Roman world, uh, you would usually take care of it at a place called the, the Bema Seat, now the Bama seat it, it, it's a place where you would go in front of a magistrate of some kind the the one of the uh, leaders in the city um, maybe even what we could think of as kind of the mayor um, now this is not in a private courtroom okay now nowadays court cases are can be very private um, they can be kind of very shut off from the from the the community around where it's taking place but not, that's not the way it is in the in the ancient world the Bama seat especially in Corinth. We know this for a fact. We can dig up archaeological um, uh, se- the archaeological setting of all this. This is right in the middle of the city marketplace. So the whole city can see this as the local magistrate would choose or not to hear your case. And as you, as you did, as you aired your dirty laundry, you would be doing it in front of everybody else. So the people of Corinth, what they would know is that there are a couple people, and they're part of this strange new movement, this strange new thing called the church, they're the followers of Jesus, and they would see them not even that far into the, the the birth of this group of people. They're already having massive disagreements with each other, and they look stupid. I think that's what Paul is saying. Now, maybe you think this, this stuff like this wouldn't happen. Like I said, our, our you know, maybe, you know, modern-day Christians just aren't as petty as ancient ones. Or maybe you think, well, even if they did have to have some court step in to figure out some disagreement between them, like no one would notice. But think again. Uh, I don't want to say too much about this because I don't want to be gossipy. Um, but I'll give you a, the cliff notes of a situation I kind of was aware of from someone I, I knew who, who, who planted a church in a city. And uh, there was already a church in the city with the same name. Now, both of the pastors of these churches thought that they had a claim on this name. And instead of kind of just being able to figure it out or just really not caring, not making a big deal of it, the pastors of these churches kind of got into a very public legal battle suing each other over it. And from what I could read in the newspaper, it was not in a, it was near here, it was kind of far away, it got kind of nasty. and And that's actually my point. I was able to read about it online in the largest paper in in the city that they were in, which means that if I were able to read it, everyone else in that community was able to too, right? And so what people are seeing is that the conflict between these two churches, between uh, these these people who are part of the same family, have the same uh, core values of wanting to follow and honor and be like Jesus, they weren't able to even contain their uh, disagreement or their conflict amongst themselves, they couldn't get together as as family members to hash it all out. For them, their rights, their their trademarks, their brands were more important than the fellowship of the gospel. And, and the coverage in the newspaper kind of pointed this out. Um, they the headline uh, of one of the main articles talking about it was about churches putting business before matters of faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's a very good look for the church in the public eye. Like I said, my my point isn't to be gossipy, and that's why I'm being really vague on a lot of the details of this. But, and I, I don't like bringing this up, but but here's why I feel like it's important to, because it gets us to ask this question of ourselves: How can we as Christians not be self-aware enough to how we're coming across to those outside the church that we would let something get to this point? And sure, sure, this this is surely this is one situation of many. I probably could. Uh, have brought to you uh, in this message, right? How can we be a light to the world when we can't even model for ourselves something that's worth following? And I think that's how we could sum up Paul's main gripe here, okay? We put his two issues, put, put his two main issues into into two points. I would say the first one is that the Corinthians apparently care so little, uh, about who they are in Jesus, that they are much more concerned about their rights and making sure they're not wronged or that they win. And they do not care about who is impacted by it. And then the second thing spinning off of that, that Paul is concerned with is the impact of the wider view of the community around them because of it. Paul's point is this, this is not fitting with their holy identity and everyone around them can see that. Now, unfortunately, Christians often seem to have little shame with how they come across to the world around them, right? In fact, sometimes I think Christians can even take being disliked in some way by wider society as some sort of badge of honor or courage, a kind of sign that they're doing something right. Now, yes, I think it's important to, to, to give this caveat here. It is true. Christians will be slandered and disliked, right? Jesus is, tries to prepare us for that in what he says, but... Okay, and a big butt here. If you're always being seen as a jerk, as a bigot, as petty and immature, just having no real shame, it's probably not other people, it's probably you. Right? And you're not being what Paul says you really are. Hey, I read this earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, 1-2. He, he talks to them about how they should take the matter uh, before their believers. We believers are supposed to judge the world. The word that's translated believers here is actually the Greek word tonhegion and hegioi for holy people. Okay, Once again, Paul is coming back to this identity, reminding them you are supposed to be holy people. You're supposed to take this seriously. You're supposed to be set apart for God, and you are really struggling to do that. So Paul asks them, don't you realize as part of this identity, we will judge angels. So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church, any one of you holy people who is wise enough to decide these issues? but instead all we have is one believer suing another right in front of unbelievers. Okay, that's verses three to six. Paul's saying this is the place where God's spirit dwells. There should be someone here, someone of the holy people who can help us to figure this out. Now in reading this again, there's a couple of things, okay? And again, if we're not careful on our bike ride here, we might fall off. So let's slow down and look at them real quick, but I don't want to dwell on these too long because it could totally derail us and cause us to, to fall off the bike. Okay, First of all, Paul talks about judging angels and judging other people. He doesn't give any more details on it. He just kind of you know throws it out there like they either should know it or he doesn't want to unpack it for some reason. And we're all like, Paul, I wish you would have given a footnote to this or something like that. That would have been pretty helpful. Now, I don't think the idea is too complicated here, um, but you kind of have to understand the story of, this, of the scripture in order, to, I think, to get where Paul's my, my mind set or his, whatever, wherever he's coming from with this, right? So in, in the story of the Bible, there's a role that humans have, and that is to be the crown jewel of creation, the ones who are made in God's image and so follow God in ruling over and caring for the whole earth wisely and justly, exercising judgment, doing justice, now, history tells us that humans have mostly done a, a crummy job of this. This is one of the, the big ideas behind the fall. We talked about this in our sermon series on sin um, earlier this year. But the point of the gospel is that the, uh, we are restored by God. And what we're restored to is supposed to be this view of humans as the sort of uh, ones who bear God's image and, and mediate and rule, and wisely, uh, with, with justice, judge over the earth, and so Paul's probably picking up on this motif, and we see it kind of um, uh, places in the Old Testament where we were talking about, where, you know, God talks about restoring his kingdom, and, and uses this, this picture of, of humans, the saints, being given a chance to assist God in judgment. Daniel 7 um, verse 27 is an example of that, Okay, so the idea is that restored humanity, what the Corinthians are supposed to be, are supposed to be on track towards becoming, uh, being God's true image bearers, are apparently going to take part in some serious image bearing activity, like the kind of work that God does. And so they're supposed to be moving towards that. But Paul's point is that you are far, far away from that right now. And instead of moving towards it, you're actually moving away from it at a kind of an alarming speed, okay? So that's what Paul, I think, is talking about there. Now, another place that the bike could get knocked over, it has to do with what Paul says about about judges and allowing outside judges to kind of weigh in on uh, what's going on amongst believers, all right? So a couple of things, okay? I think there's a few layers to this. First of all, I think it's clear It's hard to come to the conclusion that Paul doesn't have a view, a vision of the church as the place where God's spirit dwells, that the spirit is not filling the church and helping them to uh, live into an identity of being God's alternative to the oftentimes uh, confused and corrupt justice systems of the world, right? When we have God's spirit, we're supposed to be moving towards God, moving towards true justice, and so, Paul is saying, you ought to have the tools you need to figure this stuff out on your own. Okay, so I think that's the first layer. The second layer is this. And again, I think this is why it's important to understand the uh, the, the place that this is being written in. Uh, Roman judges are are the leaders of the city, but these are not people who are voted on. These are not people who are accountable to the people that they judge in any way. You got a role like this by having the right family name, by maybe some kind of nepotism and just as a, as a kind of way of trying to work your way up the ladder, right? So these are not people that have incentive to be just yet their word um, is, is treated as if it is the the final law in many of these cases. Not that you could never appeal anything, not that there weren't other guardrails in place to try to help this to, you know, not be as unjust as possible, but, but Paul has experience with this. We see it in the book of Acts. It is not known as a place where justice is done constantly. Now, would Paul speak of our modern American court system more, more favorably? I don't know. I'd like to hope so. Um, but we certainly have our own issues today. I don't think Paul's point, I think we're missing his point here, if, if we think Paul is saying we should, we Christians never ought to go to the legal authorities. I think it's a lot more along these lines of saying, man, I really hope we can figure out our disputes on our own and not engage in petty bickering like a couple of feuding neighbors, um, at least in the majority of our issues, especially when we're supposed to be God's alternative to what is oftentimes a confusing, corrupt justice system in the world. Now, listen, let me be clear on this. If a crime is ever committed against you in church, right? Like if you are sexually abused in the church, okay, let me be clear. I want you to get the legal authorities involved, okay? Let's just be really clear about that. If someone at Red City commits a crime, I think the legal authorities should be brought in, okay? Churches are not always great about this. I think there's a reason these exist. I think it's part of Paul's theology in other places that we see that it's a good thing for the state to handle matters like this. Romans 13 is a great example of this. But the point here is this, that we shouldn't be people who use the guardrails of society as a kind of crutch to sort all of our issues out for us because we're so intent on valuing our rights and winning more than anything else. All that's going to do is work backwards, and it is not going to be a good witness to the world around us. Okay? Okay. If you read in the paper about a church suing another church over branding issues and trying to work this dispute out in the court system, and then you get a Google ad from one of these churches inviting you to visit one of them, telling you that Jesus loves you and this church is going to do the same, what's going to be your response? I think we know you're probably going to be a little bit skeptical about what they have to say. And Paul says, because this is the case, this is... the the ancient equivalent of Google ads are going out from the Corinthian church to people around them and they're probably having the same response. Paul says all of this is already a defeat. He says in verses seven to eight, even to have such lawsuits with one another is a defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your fellow believers. He's saying, you guys are acting incredibly immature. And instead, you should be growing up into a kind of maturity that looks like Jesus, okay? And he doesn't say it here, but I think it's pretty obvious, especially based on what he said throughout the rest of the letter and stuff that we have highlighted a lot in in our time in in this series so far is the wisdom of the cross is what's behind this, okay? What we've called in this series, cruciformity, okay, which is a challenge of us away from viewing life as a series of triumphs and comfort and successes all the time and instead is willing to uh, accept defeat, willing to be wronged, willing to lose in a lot of different settings because that's the way that Jesus achieves victory and salvation for us. Okay, having injustice done to us, losing in some way, these things are not the ultimate slights. Because if that were true, the cross was a huge failure and Jesus would be the ultimate loser to be wronged and have the power to do something about it and not do it would have been a great defeat for him. But Jesus didn't see it that way. And that's Paul's point here. That's what he's saying is actually to be Christ-like is to be willing to give up your rights for the good of those who you're in conflict with. Now, he's not saying you have to let yourself be walked all over and you need to be a weakling. Okay, But sometimes it is better to take the L for some greater gospel good than for your rights. Maybe we ought to trust that Jesus' way is better than our very American one that is so focused on rights and winning that we start to think of the gospel and the way of Jesus Jesus as, as weakness, as stupidity. Now Paul continues on his point. He's gonna, we're gonna be riding the bike through some, uh, some, some places here that are gonna, we're gonna want to slow down on, and we're gonna do that here. Um, but let's do it in such a way that we, we don't fall off and try to keep moving towards the destination. Let me reread verses nine through eleven. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's what Paul is saying here. Again, it's important to keep this in context. He's saying the kind of behavior he's seeing in Corinth right now is in line with the kind of behavior that they used to have um, and how that's not fitting what has happened to them as people who have been cleansed and made holy. Now, this brings us to the elephant in the room. Okay, so we're going to slow the bike down. And talk about it in a way that allows our bike to kind of keep up its momentum where we don't fall off and scrape a knee or get a concussion. I think it's easy for people to read through passages like this and have that happen to them, okay? But I want to do it in such a way that allows us to keep going towards Paul's point, but also does allow us to kind of slow down and, and look at this a little bit, all right? And that's on this, uh, uh, on this line in, in verse 9, um, or practice homosexuality. Okay, so I'll be honest. I... I don't prefer to have this be be talked about in, in a sermon where where there's not able to be some dialogue going back and forth. I do think on this issue it's a hot button issue, it's a nuanced verse that um, being in a space where we can sort of sit down and really talk about this is a little bit more preferable than in a kind of uh, the kind of setting that we 're in. but I also don't want to shy away from it either, okay. And so let's talk about it. But let me make clear that this is not the main point of the passage whatsoever. I think it's important that we connect it back to the main point. So I'm going to try to do that. Um, first off, an important note, though. Um, this, is, this is kind of a thorny translation issue here. It's it's, it's hard to know if Paul is is, is kind of uh, bringing together uh, the, the part about practicing homosexuality with male prostitutes or if it's two separate things. Um, uh, we're not totally sure. Um, He seems to think the Corinthians know exactly what he's talking about. Um, But it's also not the only place that Paul talks about this in his letters um, either. Either way, this is going to be sometimes translated and interpreted as as this, as the line looking like this. Homosexuals won't inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I think the NLT, which is the the translation we're using here today, where they say practicing homosexuality is helpful in trying to bridge, I think, what is a cultural gap because homosexuality, that word is a modern category. Uh, Paul in the Corinthian church wouldn't know what that word even means because in the ancient world, the idea of sexual orientation wasn't a thing. Right for us it is. We have a very deep understanding of, of of sexual orientation nowadays. But in the ancient world, that was that was really not something that people uh, understood or thought about. So it's twisting it to think Paul is saying that those who experience same sex attraction in their orientation, um, and are homosexual in some way in their orientation, will automatically not inherit the kingdom. Okay, that is is not, I don't think you can read this as, as what Paul is saying at all, because he has no familiarity with that. Okay, now at the same time, while sexual orientation wasn't a thing in the ancient world, we also have to say that that doesn't mean that um, gay people didn't exist and weren't known in the ancient world. Um, in the ancient world, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week. Um, basically, sex ethics worked like this. If you were a respectable male you could kind of do whatever you wanted sexually, whether you were married or not. And and many or maybe most men did exactly that. So the idea of a same-sex marriage wouldn't make any sense to anyone because you got married to carry on your family legacy um, and to have kids. Okay, that's super important. But marriage was not a reason for a man to not have sex with anyone else he wanted to. Married men used slaves and mistresses all the time. And having same-sex lovers is not really a problematic thing in Rome, okay? So, for example, one one Roman emperor who lived not too long after Paul writes this um, was married to a woman, but was it was fairly well known about his kind of long-term uh, romantic relationship with one guy in particular. And very few saw any real problem with this. Um, and I think Paul was well aware of this. Um, and, and for him, all of that... is a a part of a wider approach to sexuality that is not holy. Now, like I said, we'll unpack this more in next week's sermon. But I think what Paul wants, as is clear in this letter, and in in everything else that Paul has talked about, is a baptized imagination that takes seriously holiness. And sexuality is one of many important arenas in which our holiness plays out. Okay, that's the main takeaway you ought to have about this text and about the next one as well. So let me be clear. As it pertains to this passage, I think personally that having same-sex attraction and in that way being homosexual is not sinful and in no way what Paul is talking about in this passage. Okay, like I said, he doesn't even know what orientation is. He's talking instead about how you choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to live. Are you going to align yourself with holiness or are you going to align yourself with the status quo of society around us, which says chase your desires, you know, grab a hold of your rights. Um, Don't even think about anything else. Just seek those out. Paul, I think would say holiness is defined by what you choose to do with whatever desires you have, including your sexual ones, right? Just like someone chooses to say yes or no to that urge to cheat their fellow Church member. Holiness is played out in what you choose to do with those urges, not having them in the first place. And so the question is will you choose to dedicate those urges to God or will you dedicate them to yourself in some way? Now, I think it's assumed, it's really hard to read this passage and other ones throughout Scripture that um, is against what I'm about to say that Paul and other writers of the Bible. Um, assumed that a conscious decision to live out a lifestyle of homosexuality, of practicing it in some way, is counter to this. Counter this vision of holiness and it doesn't fit it. It's not living or thinking in a way that is dedicated to God. Right? And I think it's like I said, it's really hard to not come to that conclusion when you read scripture. Okay? I do want to be clear about that. Um and as we find ourselves in the moment that we live in, we find ourselves having to wrestle with that. And there are lots of faithful Christians who love Jesus who are navigating this. How do we be holy with our desires? How do we be holy with our different orientations, right? And I think there are faithful Christians who truly want to honor God on both sides of the conversation coming from multiple angles. I really do think that's the case. And and, and it's an, an example of the church in um, every time and place has a task of of. Trying to be faithful and holy and navigate through things like this in every age, every church, every church, every era of the church is going to have to have to take these types of of complicated thorny issues and navigate through them together, well. And and I think it's important that we have humility and uh, respect for each other as we do that. Okay, but having said all that, I don't want to make that the main takeaway here because I don't think it's really Paul's, okay? So let's keep our bike momentum going forward. Because I think if we take the situation that Paul is dealing with here, we can find a bit of a parallel into our own time and place here, okay? Paul is upset that the church in Corinth is known as petty and squabbling because of their lawsuits. And today, the church is known for having a reputation, for being devoid of kindness and empathy towards LGBTQ people. Now, like we pointed out, Paul has a concern for how the Corinthians' issues caused them to be understood by the unbelievers in the city. And today, likewise, polls consistently say that people outside the church, they like Jesus, but they're less favorable towards Jesus' church. Which kind of begs the question, if the church were more like Jesus, would that bridge that gap in some way? Would that not make the church more attractive? seems to be that's what outsiders are telling us might it be as simple as the fact that too often today's church has been like the corinthian church having really no sense of awareness and or, or not caring about how we're perceived really not valuing uh kindness because i think that's actually what the scriptures and the call to be holy looks like is to embody kindness Okay, now let me give you an example, and it has to do with this with this issue in particular, talking about LGBTQ um, and the church. Now, Preston Sprinkle, he's an author. I definitely recommend him. He writes and he podcasts about a lot of a lot of different things, but probably the work he's most famous for is, is talking about Christianity and LGBTQ stuff, and. Um, Despite holding uh, an orthodox or traditional Christian sex ethic, as far as I can tell, he's very well thought of by people who disagree with him, um, by LGBTQ activists, both both who are Christian and non, who disagree with him quite a bit. He's very well thought of by them, and it's because of his posture. And he says things like this, and this is from a quote of a new book he has coming out, I saw it online, um... I haven't read the book itself, but I really liked this. I really, and I thought it fit well with what Paul is saying here. So he says, uh, Paul says, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. That's Romans 2, 4. So then he asks this question. So if you really think someone should repent, how kind are you? How kind are you? See, he connects God's character of kindness as being the thing that leads us to repentance right? And if we want to challenge people to repent, to follow Jesus, shouldn't kindness be where we start? Okay, he's noting that God's response to sin, what we see demonstrated in Jesus in the gospel, that's kindness. That's what leads us to repentance, to the decision to turn from whatever path we're we're on, taking us away from Jesus and leading us back towards him. And so if we were trying to look more like Jesus, wouldn't we see kindness as the avenue for us to follow too? Wouldn't we want kindness and empathy and love and patience and goodness and gentleness to be our dominating posture, not just to LGBTQ people, but to all people? Wouldn't that be a better public witness than what we so often see? Maybe holiness and set-apartness means aligning our posture with the posture of the God who uses kindness to induce repentance in us. If we're going to look like God, which is exactly what holiness says. We have to be as concerned with kindness as we are with just being right. Because you can be right and still be wrong. If you know what I mean. And that Christians can miss this way too easily. Okay, God doesn't love us because we were right, in fact. (laughs) Even though we think we're impressing him by how right we are all the time. We were very wrong and we continue to be. And despite that, God came to us in kindness. Even look at the Corinthians in this letter. They're very wrong, egregiously so. And God in love through Paul is still trying to get them to turn back. So who are we to decide that we can act differently towards people we think are wrong in some way, even if they might be? Then God acts towards us when we're wrong. And we don't get some special exemption to be jerks for Jesus. It's a profound thought that I think, sadly, too many Christians pass on by unthinkingly. let's not be like that, okay? This is a way that we can take the call for holiness seriously. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that despite the fact that we are wrong so often, despite the fact that um, we are not concerned with holiness, even in how we interact with each other, your kindness is what you approach us with as you challenge us to turn and to follow you. Lord, I pray that as we embrace holiness, as we become who we are, that you would help us to embrace this through the help of your spirit, God. I know this is the better way. It's the harder way, but it's the better way, Lord. And if as we follow you, we believe your spirit is with us and helps us to accomplish greater things than we could possibly imagine than if we were just trying to go out and do it the way that everything else, everyone else around us, the world around us, says to seek things out. Let us be known for how we're different, God, for how we're set apart, for how we're holy towards you, God. Give us strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.